Hey guys, welcome to this week of So What Else. Before I get to telling you about our guest for this week, I just wanted to say really quickly that I know every week I ask you guys to hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review for the show. And it kind of dawned on me this week that I hadn't actually done that for other podcasts that I'm a huge fan of. And that's kind of hypocritical of me, right? So I decided to hop on this week. I took 30 seconds and I picked some of my favorite podcasts and I gave them a five-star rating and a review. It took no time at all, but it really helps out their show. So I would just love if you guys could take, like I said, 30 seconds, hop on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not where you listen to the show, and just give us a five-star rating and review. It helps so it else so much. The more ratings and reviews that we have, the easier it is for other people to find the show. So as I always say, if you would do that for us, I would love you forever. Thanks, guys. So on to this week's episode. This week, I got to interview Tova Sito. I was really excited to talk to her because I've heard her speak for years on different podcasts, and I was really excited to get to speak with her. I know she has a really, really powerful story. She was so warm, so lovely. I absolutely loved talking to her. And I know that you're going to love listening to our conversation because her warmth just comes through. Um, Tova is an author, speaker, podcaster, counselor, minister. She has worn a lot of hats. She shares this week about some hard stuff she went through as a child and then some really deep loss that she suffered as an adult. As a trigger warning for you guys, we do talk about infant loss in this episode. So I just want you to be aware that that is um, discussed today. As I said, her story is a hard one, but it's really beautiful. And her healing journey and where she is today is very beautiful. I think you guys are really going to love it. So stay tuned. Tova, welcome to So What Else. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm I feel so honored and lucky and happy to be here. Ah, I mean, I've heard your story a few different times on a few different podcasts, and I've always kind of had you in mind of someone I would love to talk to. So I'm so excited we are getting to do this today. I love what a podcast junkie you are. I know. Oh my gosh. Well, people, okay. When I interview people, have you noticed I'm thorough? It kind of made me feel... So I am not thorough and, and I'm other things. I have other gifts, but like uh, when, whenever I have a guest on my podcast, I am like, okay, see you in the studio at one o'clock or we'll call you. And there's no prep. Like you're, I have to tell you, like your professionalism and your thoroughness has been incredibly humbling and don't say that. uh, Okay. Don't say that. Inspiring. I wouldn't say it's professionalism. I would say it is like type A OCD problems. Like that's really what it is. Like I just like, (laughs) it's me and my anxiety. That's really what it is. So don't give me too much credit. Like, oh, I'm so professional. And I got like a professional thing going on here. It's just me being thorough to the point where it's almost like I come across as a stalker. Like one person that I interviewed, she came on and she was like, yo, I got your notes. Like, you know more about me than I know about me. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. I'm not creepy. I promise. But I just like try and listen to a lot of interviews and read the books and stuff so that I know what I'm getting into. (laughs) Maybe as I get like, maybe as I'm podcasting longer, I'll prep less. We'll see. (laughs) I don't know. No, I think think it's a personality thing, but I actually really, I think it's fantastic. and It's your style. So I think you should just go with it. It is true. It's true. It is my style. How long have you been podcasting? 
Well, I think I have, well, I don't even know. Maybe four, three or four years. Hold on. Let oh me, yeah. Let a me nice see while. how many episodes. I have. That- you have a lot. You have a ton of episodes on there. I have 183, it looks like. So that oh my would be gosh. divided by 52 as well mm. for three years. So wow. A while. That's awesome. So mm. I love, I love, love, love your name, Tova. Tell oh, me, what does you. it mean? Where does it come from? So my parents just liked really unusual names. Um, so it actually means good one or uh, like good. Like, yes. So it's Hebrew mm-hmm. and Jewish, but my parents just like unusual names. It really had nothing to do. Anyway, like Mazel Tov, like yeah. the top part of it yes. is Tov, T-O-V, yes. and you add an A and it makes it feminine. So yes, like a good girl. Okay. So that's, I was wondering if that's what it meant because, um, Scott McKnight is like a podcaster, author, Christian speaker, whatever. And he wrote a book recently with his daughter called A Church Called Tove. And it's basically Uh-oh. about how, like, with like all the scandals that have happened, you know what I mean? At churches everywhere. And it's like, why, you know, like, I think he's basically breaking down kind of like, how did we get so off track? And really what we should be aiming for is Tove, is like a true, genuine, deep goodness. And oh, so I wow. feel like that's such a beautiful thing that that's your name. I know. I, of course, I wanted to be Jennifer when well, I was right. Born, Who did you know? Yeah. Being Tova was not cool. <laughs> but I but, think it's very cool. Oh, now I just so love and appreciate it. And the, and so my grandmother, my my mother's side of the family, is Spanish, and so my grandmother used to call me Tobasita. Aww. Like when I was a little girl, like little Toba. And it's so funny because when I got married, my main name was Carter. But when I got married, that my last name became Cito. Yeah. So and it so, sounds like that. Yeah. So it's Toba Cito. So a lot of people who know Spanish or are familiar with Spanish, they they think my name is Toba Cita. Yeah. And- <laughs> that's, I like that. That's cute. That's cute. It's really cute. I love Toba Cita. That's cute. I love that. I love that. I love your name. So I know we've been talking for a while already, but why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Just kind of like, what do you do? Who are you? Obviously they know you're a podcaster. What else is there to know about you? I'm I'm from Dallas. I grew up here. I moved away for 10 years in my twenties and then came back here in 99. I turned 50 last year. That felt really good. Um, I, I love I love being healthy and I love being 50. Um, my mom died when she was 53 and she, mm. she was diagnosed with cancer when she was 39. So she was sick for a lot of years. And so I just feel really blessed to be healthy. And um, I uh, was married in 99. Um, I had a lot of loss with children for a few years. And, and then I lost my mom. Um, and that was really, really, really difficult, but I kind of just resigned to the fact that I wasn't meant to be a mom, even though I really felt like that was the only reason I was put here on the earth. And then 2016, I sadly divorced my husband who was just the love of my life. And that was a really hard, hard, hard loss. Um, since then, I've just kind of been, uh, for a couple of years, it took me a little bit to get it back together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am, uh, so I'm an ordained minister 
And I am also a counselor and I work out of my home. I have, I have clients all over the nation. I'm pretty busy, which I love and appreciate. I feel really blessed. I have a beautiful life. There's been a lot of stuff, but I feel, I feel very much at peace with March 11th. 2022. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, there's people I'm sure listening to this that are like, I want that. I want to feel at peace, you know? So I think, and knowing the listeners don't know, but I know, you know, what you've been through. That's really huge. I think to be able to say that you feel like at peace in your life. Um, I know you're also an author. I am. Yep. I wrote, I've written a couple of devotionals. Um, I was a youth pastor at uh, Highland Park Methodist here in Dallas for seven years. And when I worked there, I wrote a weekly devotional. Um, And so I just compiled those and made them into two devotionals. It's called uh, Jesus Loves You, Always Will. And then Jesus Still Loves You, Always Will. (laughs) I love that. I I love that. And then I kind of wrote a story or or a book about um, just my faith, my story, loss, mm-hmm. love. And I, uh, I published that in 2016, 17, mm-hmm. and it's called Borrowed Courage. I love that. I want to talk more about Borrowed Courage in a little bit, but I want to kind of get into it. You said at the beginning, you said, you know, I knew that I always wanted to be a mom. Like that was what you felt like you were put on this earth for. Can you bring us back a little bit to your childhood? So I know that you grew up Mormon. Could you kind of bring us into your childhood a little bit? So um, my parents were both raised Mormon. Uh, they were they grew up in Colorado. They met young. My parents were married when my mom was seventeen. My like she graduated high school, got wow. married, and my dad was twenty two. Um, they were young and um, naive. And they, they had my sister when my mom was 19. My mom had me when she was 20. Wow. So they were very, very, very young. Um, we moved here to Dallas when I was six. Um, and I grew up in a very, 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 um, very religious home, um, Mm -hmm. but not a happy home. And, in fact, it was just really unhappy. Um, there were four of us, my older sister, younger sister, younger brother. We are all very, very, very close. It was interesting because as much turmoil as there was from my parents, they they were not happy. They did not get along. There was abuse. Uh, my mom had been abused growing up. And so it was natural for her to turn around and be very right. abusive to us. And it was kind of a mind F for lack of a, I don't want to cuss, but yeah. it, it was mind F. Um, because on Sundays we were this perfect Mormon family yeah. that, you know, played by the rules and did all, everything right. And then we went home and all hell broke loose. Mm. And there was a lot of religious abuse growing up. Um, a lot of shame. It was painful. Um, I, I was only allowed to apply to one school. That was BYU. Right. And I went, I loved the outdoors and I'd grew up, grew up in Dallas. So I, I'd never been exposed to, I mean, vacations, but not living right. in the 
outdoors. So I really escaped to the mountains, hiking, skiing. I really embraced all of the beautiful things about being in God's nature and mm-hmm. God's creation. But the school was really difficult for me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I made amazing friends. I, 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 there were a lot of positives, but it was a lot of negative. And the second I graduated college, I left. I, mm-hmm. I left Mormonism. My parents cut me off and oh, wow. they were very angry at me, very disappointed, a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but I moved to Park City and I just kind of tried to find who Tova was for so many years. A Tova was assigned. Mm-hmm. Tova was assigned. I was assigned a role, uh, a, a faith, a belief, a behavior. I was assigned and, and nobody, I don't believe that anybody should be assigned by anybody but God. Mm-hmm. And so I had to find my new assignment Yeah, as Tova, who God created me to be, not who I'd been trying to please for all of these years. And when I was pleasing, oh my God, I cannot tell you how miserable I was. I had no idea how miserable I was. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Um, and, and so when I moved to Park City, it was actually a beautiful thing. And then a couple of years later, I moved to San Francisco and that, that was just like an opening, you know, yeah. it was, that was like, I gave Tova permission to be Tova. Mm-hmm. It was really fantastic. <laughs> mm, yeah. But growing up Mormon was very difficult and growing yeah. up the place was very scary. Yeah. It, it took a lot of years and a lot of therapy and a lot of help mm-hmm. to undo what had been done. Yeah. Did your siblings leave Mormonism as well or are they no. still practicing? So I have two sisters, one brother. That My two sisters are still Mormon. My brother is not. Okay. Um, uh, we're all still very, very close. Okay. Um, my brother is <clears throat> my best friend in the whole world. I talk to him three times a day. Mm. Um, he is so dear to me. He's nine years younger than me. And because our home was so abusive and scary, I felt very protective of my little brother and little sister. Yeah. And so I shielded them as much as I could for as long as I could before mm. I left. Yeah. And, um, and we've always, we've always stayed really close. I feel yeah. so grateful. And, and, you know, if there was one good thing that came out of a really messed up childhood, it was the fact that because I couldn't look up to my parents, I looked sideways at my siblings and, you know, I'm still looking mm-hmm. at them. Yeah. And so that kind of put something in you growing up like that and feeling that need to like really protect your must, must, much younger siblings, you know, put something in you. Like I'm going to be an amazing mom one day. Like you were just like, I'm going to do it different. Like I'm going to have kids and I'm going to do it different and I'm going to, they're going to be safe and they're going to be loved in my home. Can you say that? And I don't know how my brain did it. And my siblings and I talk about it because they are equally as phenomenal as humans and parents and, you know, statistics 
say that we would turn around and do the same thing. And you know, we did yeah. not have those things in our favor. And yet all four of us have, have become phenomenal parents and really sound relatively speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's a little crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. People, but yeah, there was like this thing. It's, it's really interesting. You say that, but there was this observation. It's like, I was, I had a note section, you know, Mm -hmm. growing up, not really, but in my mind. And I would look at my parents and I would think never going to do that. Right. Never going to do that. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I'm certainly going to do this. Like, it was never an option to repeat. Mm. Never. That's cool. I mean, that says a lot to just kind of like who you are innately as a person. You know what I mean? Like, just that you were so aware from a young age, you know, that you didn't just kind of become a statistic, right? Where you just kind of turn around and repeat the same behaviors because that's all you know, that you actively from a young age were like aware of what was going on, that it wasn't right and it wasn't something you wanted to repeat. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I was not interested in becoming my mom. Yeah. So my dad. Were you able to, like fast forwarding, we're skipping a bunch of stuff for one second. Yeah. Were you able to ever get to a point of forgiving them or like, okay. I totally forgive. And, and I can forgive because I'm a parent myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that I am doing absolutely the best I can with what I have. Yeah. And, And I believe that my parents did the best they could with what they had. And so in there, I can find the grace and compassion. And I one time read this thing that said not forgiving someone is like uh, eating rat poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. And so for a a while, you know, I resented and I was angry and hurt. And then I was like, it's not serving me. It's not accomplishing anything. And I really, again, I really believe they did the best they could with what they had. So yes, I forgive them totally. And my mom passed away in 2003 and there were, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of sweet moments in caring for her Mm -hmm. um, that just melted the pain. And, and then I have this peace that she's in heaven Mm -hmm. and I have this sense that she's with me Mm -hmm. and she's really proud of me. And she's sorry. Mm. I really have that sense. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, okay, you left Mormonism, you moved to California, you kind of discovered yourself, and then you got married and decided to start a family. Tell us about that. So I I kind of alluded to it. You alluded to it. Like I had one dream growing up, and that was to be a mom. I just felt like if I was created for something. It was that. And so getting, having a baby and starting a family was so like, I couldn't wait. Mm -hmm. Um, I got pregnant six months after I got married. Yeah. And, um, it seemed fine. Everything seemed fine when I was pregnant. Um, you know, I didn't, it was my first pregnancy, so I had no idea what to expect, but, um, at some point, and I, it, I, maybe halfway through, maybe six months in, um, we we found out that our baby had a uh, 
heart defect. And um, she was really small. She wasn't developing. Blood wasn't getting to her. And and the chances of her surviving birth were really slim. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm small. My ex-husband's kind of small. Like he's skinny and lean. And, um, and so we having a small baby wouldn't like I was small pregnant, but I had no idea. Like, <clears throat> right. Right. But I was really small and she was really, the baby was really small. And so we knew that, uh, the chances of her surviving. And then they told us if she survived birth, that she would go right into surgery. She, our hearts have four chambers. Hers only had two. Okay. So the way that things were pumping were, were making it very difficult for her to grow. And thrive. And so, um, she did not make, she did not make birth. I gave birth at, uh, almost full term and I was three weeks away from my due date and was, gave birth to a stillborn. And I, I felt like I was kind of one of the first to have a baby of my friends. I'd never heard of a stillborn. I've heard, I'd heard of miscarriages. But, sure. You know, I had never been exposed to, to that. Yeah. And, um, so that was a very dark and painful and strange yeah. and lo- loss, um, because I went into the hospital pregnant and I came out of the hospital without a baby. Yeah. Um, did you think I- that there would like, did, were you holding on to hope of it for a miracle that like she was going to come out and like, it was going to be okay? she was going to make it and like, she was going to be okay. Yes. And I, I thought there, I mean, and the doctors had said as much, they had said, you know, that there's very little chance, but there was still a chance that she could survive. And so I was just channeling that. And I actually didn't tell anybody. I told my dad, um, about her being, having a heart defect. When you were Um, pregnant. Yes. I don't even Uh, think I, Um, I, I, I didn't share that with anybody. It was just because I didn't, I was, I loved being pregnant so much Yeah. and I, there was so much joy in the movement and the growing and my belly that I was afraid that if people knew they would only be sad and scared for me. And I did not want, I was already sad and scared. I didn't want to take on anybody else's energy about yeah. that. Yeah, No, that makes and sense. So, mm-hmm. so I just kept it to myself. Um, and, and I'm, I don't regret that decision Yeah, uh, because it made the pregnancy better than it would have been for me. Yeah. I understand that. And was your husband like on board with that at the time? He was. Yeah. He was. We were, we were often on the same page about our, about our children, which I really, really, really appreciate. Um, after that loss, I felt very strongly that I just needed to get pregnant again. Like I had, I had like tasted motherhood and albeit for a second and a lot of sadness involved, I felt very strongly that this was 
what I was meant for. And so I, I got, I never had a problem getting pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting pregnant, I was very fertile. And so if I, like, uh, I think I, if I tried, I got pregnant. And, um, so I got pregnant again shortly after. And, um, my pregnancy was very normal and healthy and all the sonograms looked amazing. And, Oh, I was so grateful. We were not going to find out the sex, but I went to the doctor by myself one day. And I was, <laughs> okay, just tell me, like, what is? And, and so I knew what the baby was before I gave birth, and I had always wanted a boy. Like, Aww. I just felt like the connection that I would make being a, a boy's mom would yeah. be so good. And, um, and so I found out that I was having a boy and, oh, it just Aww. like, and then in January, he was born January 9th, 2003. And it is hands down to this day, the greatest day of my life. Aww. The day that I gave birth to Charlie. Yeah. And I can tell my story a thousand times and I cannot talk about that day without getting tears in my eyes mm. because he was perfection. Mm. And I mean, I stayed up all night staring at him, just looking at, he was the most beautiful baby. He had this tan skin, these blue eyes. He had all this blonde hair. He was just drop dead gorgeous. I remember when he was like three months or four months, I, I took him with me to get my nails done. And the girl who did my nails was like, he, he's a movie star. He's going to be a movie star. And I was Aww. like, he's a movie star. <laughs> he, so was just, he was perfect. And he was just the sweetest, sweetest baby. Um, everything seemed to be going great when I gave birth to him. I mean, what did I know? He breastfed, right? he was healthy, he was strong, he was growing. And um, so we, you know, we took him to all his pediatrician appointments. And then at three months, they, uh, my pediatrician was like, you know what? He's a little small. Like he's, he's not gaining as much weight as we like, like maybe you should up the feedings and, you know, come back in a week or two. And so we were, we were, toying with his feedings and maybe you're not producing enough milk. Maybe we should supplement a couple mm -hmm. weeks later we're supplementing a couple weeks after that, we're giving him real fatty, high calorie formula. Right. And really nothing seems to be working. And like, you know, babies get big and fat yeah. and Charlie did not get big and fat fast, but he was growing really long and he wasn't sick. Mm -hmm. So it's like he was throwing his food up. Or, right was crying. He was not crying. He was, he wasn't, he was just a totally average, normal baby. I mean, yeah. he seemed to be thriving mm -hmm. outside of his weight gain. Um, but at four months, I just went to the doctor and he had, he had gained a little bit of weight, but not a lot. And I said to the doctor, I, I, we need blood work. And I don't even know why I said that. Like, mm -hmm. what the hell did I know? Like, right, right. Why would I, I just say we felt need blood? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and uh the doctor was like, okay, you know, we'll we can order some blood work. And so it was a uh Friday when we went down to children's to get some blood work. And he 
he said um, that, that, or they told us they'd call us at some point on Saturday. We had left to go on a walk with Charlie and came back and there was a, there was, or I think maybe we were supposed to find out like Monday, Tuesday. It's like, didn't feel stressful, you know? Right, right. So we had left to go on a walk, came back and there was a call on our answering machine. That's how long yeah, ago. the old school. Yeah, that it was the doctor and we needed to call him immediately. And so we got a call that the blood work had came back and it had shown that that Charlie was in liver failure. He His liver numbers were just scary high. And so they were like, you need to pack a bag and you need to come down to Children's. Like, we got to check you in and figure this out. So we were there for a month at Ugh. Children's trying to figure out what was wrong. I mean, they did every test under the sun. Um, and everything just kept coming up inconclusive. And so they uh, finally were like, we just, we're going to have to do a liver biopsy. And so, I mean, he was no more than seven, eight pounds. And they did a liver biopsy and it came back that his, liver was really sick. It was really fatty and it was, it was riddled with a disease that's really rare. It's called mitochondrial disease. And, um, I don't know how much you know about that or, or your list, but it's a, uh, it's a very rare metabolic disease that attacks the cells. So mitochondria are the energy sources of our cells. Actually, the aging process is the breakdown of our mitochondria. We get wrinkles in our, on our face because the mitochondria in our cells is breaking down. Okay. And so our bodies break down. We're not as strong. We're not as, we don't have as much energy uh, because the mito- as we age, the mitochondria is breaking down. And so mitochondrial disease is the, when the mitochondria are attacked at a rapid rate. And so he was losing mitochondria exponentially and it Mm. had attacked his liver. And so there's no very little treatment. There's just like band-aids to put on the, the, um, side effects of what comes with my, but there, there's no cure. So did they tell, did they say like, there is no cure for this? There's nothing we can do. Did they give you any kind of hope at all? Or was it just like, there's nothing? No, there was no hope. They didn't know timeline. They had no idea how long it would take for him to pass away. But this was a terminal diagnosis with <sighs> no, no, no hope. And so we went home and he was four months at the time. So this is April and he would have to have blood transfusions because his platelets would get so low from time to time. So we would have to go back into the hospital for that for a night or two. Um, we tried really hard to convince different hospitals all around the United States. We went, we went a lot of places with Charlie. Mm. Um, but nobody was interested in doing a, a transplant on a child or anybody who had a systemic disease. So if it has an if there's an if there's a chance that it could attack if the disease could attack another organ then they didn't want to for lack of a better word they didn't want to waste an organ I see. on somebody who was going to die eventually so even if it bought us time they didn't 
you know, they, they, they didn't want to do that. And I, I mean, I had a really hard time with that Yeah, because I was like, if it gives me six more months or six years, who are you to put that timeline on my son? Absolutely. You know, I had to make peace with it. Um, It was July. We went in one last time and they told us that there was just, it was time to go on hospice and that there was, you know, we didn't need to spend any more time in the hospital. And so we went home and got on hospice and then we had no idea how much time we had left, but I was like, we're home and we're going to, we're going to make the best of whatever time he has left. So we took him to the beach. Mm. We took him to the ocean. We took him to meet his grandparents. Mm-hmm. And um, and then on August 31st, same year, 2003, he died. Charlie died at home. And uh, if January 9th was the best day of my life, August 31st was the worst. I am so sorry. Yeah, me too. I still He brought me a lot. It's strange. Mm-hmm. Charlie brought me a lot of comfort. Mm. He, his eyes, his soul, like we were really connected in a way that I have never been connected with anybody. Mm. And so I really miss him. But there was something like strange about me. I mean, people, I'm sure, would be like, what were you thinking? But um, I just didn't feel like I was done, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Topher and I went and talked to metabolic specialists all around. And we went to mitochondrial disease conferences. We flew to Seattle and met with a doctor who specializes in the genetics of mitochondrial disease. And we, we just want to understand like, where did this come from? Like, how did, how right. did our children get this? Was, was it connected with the first baby? Like, right. you know, what, are we stupid to like, is every baby we get pregnant with going to have this? And, uh, we learned by a doctor in Seattle that there's three ways that a baby can a person, a human can be born with mitochondrial disease. Most of the time, like I think it's like 90% of cases of people who have mitochondrial disease, it's a a disease that's carried by the mother. So the mom has it and every single baby that the mom has will have mitochondrial disease. And every single baby that's like, say I had four daughters, say I had mitochondrial disease and I had four daughters, all four of them would not only have it, but they would be carriers of it to their children. Right. And nobody in my family had mitochondrial disease. I didn't have mitochondrial disease. And so it was not me. It was not a maternal situation. And then, so the other two options are a recessive gene that both my husband and I carry this rare disease. The doctor was like, that's implausible. Like, the chances of you two having being recessive carriers of this very rare metabolic disease is so slim. Like that's not it. So he was like, it had to be a sporadic genetic mutation and they did not assign the two pregnancies together because the 
my firstborn had heart defect and Charlie had liver disease. And so if it was a recessive gene, those two would be aligned. So both babies would have had something wrong with their liver. Okay. Okay. And so he really gave us confidence to try again. I asked him point blank. I said, if you were me, would you get pregnant again? He said, absolutely. And he was an expert in mitochondrial disease. So I did. I got pregnant and I got pregnant with a baby girl and I gave birth to her in June or in November of 2004. So Charlie passed away. um, Charlie passed away August 31st of 2003. Louisa was born in November of 2004. Okay. And she was just hilarious and beautiful and feisty. Charlie was very calming and uh, soulful. And Louisa was just a lot like me. She was just feisty and fun. And, you know, she had two speeds and she just was the greatest smiler on. And in fact, I mean, she eventually got diagnosed with mitochondrial disease as well. And and she passed away the exact same way, almost the exact same timing as Charlie. It was June of 2005. But on her grave, on her headstone, it says God's little smiler because she was just so joyful. So you had her and she was healthy and everything was normal. She grew faster and and gained more weight initially than Charlie. So they were very optimistic. And the, we ran her liver numbers the second she was born and she was perfectly healthy. And there was no sign of disease. But after a couple of months, she stopped gaining weight. I was so scared that she had, that she was born with it, and that every single day I would bathe her and then I would strip down all my clothes mm-hmm. and I would stand on the scale with her. And mm-hmm. every day that the scale went up, you know, or at least stayed the same, it would, I just found so much relief. Um, but there was one day that the scale started going down and I, it, you know, I would step on the scale and then I'd get on the scale with Subtract, her. Subtract, yeah. Exactly how much she weighed. And so, you know, it was, it was almost shocking. Yeah. Like call me naive, but I was like, there's no way God is going to let this happen again. (laughs) Absolutely. So I was just going to ask you that at this point in your life, where were you on your faith journey? Because I know you had been raised Mormon. You had left that after college. Where were you? So now you've lost three children. Mm -hmm. Where, what role did faith play in your life at this point or did it at all? So it did. So when we, when we, when I got married, faith, I knew that faith, I wanted faith to be a part of my family. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of church shopped and it's not hard in Dallas, as you can imagine, there's yep. like mega churches within six miles of my home. Mm-hmm. Um, we landed at Highland Park Methodist Church. We loved it. It felt really, really good. But church, church and faith were very convenient to me. You know, I went to church if it was sunny And I found a parking place and I wasn't hungover and it wasn't raining. And, you know, if I, if we wanted to go have mimosas at brunch instead, that was fine. You know, and I never thought twice about it. Um, 
it was just, faith was very convenient for me. Mm-hmm. I had never had to rely on God the way that I did after my losses. Mm-hmm. And so there were times, and I know you know this because you read my book, but I I just wanted to die. Like I, yeah. I really, I, I can't believe it, but I contemplated suicide. I, I fantasized about it. I wanted so badly to die and I wanted so badly to be with my children. Um, but I was scared. I was scared to commit suicide. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was, I was terrified at what that would do to my husband. And so, but I hated living. Like mm-hmm. I just hated living. And so Louisa died in June and August, I actually made an appointment to go speak with my pastor Okay, um, at the church because I just felt so hopeless. I didn't know where to go. So before my children were born, I'd worked in corporate America. I was a corporate executive, mm-hmm. really successful and did really well. But after my children were born and died, I just did not want to go back to corporate. I just, I couldn't do it. I don't know why I just couldn't do it. And so I just felt really lost and I didn't know what to do. And so I actually went, made an appointment with our pastor and sat down with him. And I mean, it was kind of a shocking meeting um, because I sat down and, and he had no, so the church is huge, yeah, 16,000 members. And so he was not, he did not know what had happened that, you know, people in pastoral care, pastoral care had helped us through that, navigated that and did our service. So he, our head pastor was not familiar with me or our story. And so I sat down and told him. And when I was done, uh, just telling him what had happened, you know, I just kind of paused and he looked at me and he said, are you done? And I said, yeah, I'm done. I was bawling my eyes out. And he was like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. That's why I'm here. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a mom. I want to be a mom. And he looked at me and he was like, well, that's just not going to (sighs) happen. And he said, and God didn't put you on this earth, Toba, to sit around and cry about your dead children. Oh my goodness. And then he said, this is the the day the Lord has made rejoice and be glad in it. What are you going to do? Wow. I I was so pissed. Yeah. I was so mad. I just felt like, what are you talking, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And because the only thing I had done for months was cry about my dead children. Yeah. And so he left the office. He got up, walked out, comes back in and he had another woman with him. And he said, Tova, this is Elise. Elise, this is Tova. Tova, you need a job and we need help here at the church. And so you're going to come work at the church. Oh my gosh. And I was like, I'm not working at the church. Yeah. Like, uh, but I just felt so lost. And I don't know. I was like, it, it was like a Thursday or something. And he said, Elise will call you tomorrow. She called me the next day and she said, we'll see you Monday. Oh my. And I had started. So, so in between Charlie and Lou, I also lost my mom. Oh. And so I, they just threw me in adult ministries. Believe me, I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I was hired to be the part time assistant in adult ministry. All right. 
You're like, okay. Whatever. Yeah. My boss looked exactly like my mom. And, but she was so much sweeter. (laughs) 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 And I would sit outside of her office in this cubicle every day. And, you know, I was there from like nine to three or nine to 12. And around 1030 every day, I would just start crying. And Mm -hmm. she would see my shoulders like from the back, like just shake and and she was like, she would be like, come here, come sit. And she would just invite me into her office, Aww. listen to me and cry with me and hug me. And it was, it was such a godsend. It was mm. such an answered prayer. And then six months after that, there was an opening in the youth ministry. And I was like, I think I could do that. I mean, why wow. on what this? Who knows? And then six months after that, and I loved it. I loved it. I was hired to be the senior youth minister, senior youth director. And then six months after I started doing that, the youth director left. And so Mark Craig, who actually I had had the meeting with, you know, a year earlier, who said, you're coming to work at the church. He came into my office and he told me that the youth director was leaving and I, he wanted me to be the youth director. And I was like, Mark, I just learned that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the four gospels. Right. Like, I <laughs> You're like, I'm I'm new, I'm new to this, man. Yeah. You do not want me. <laughs> you do not want me to be the youth pastor. But he did. I said, Why on earth yeah. would you want me to do that? And he said, They don't need to know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the Bible, but they need to be loved. Mm. And know how to do that really well. And that was it. And that was kind of my journey into ministry. So I just started down that path and started going to school. And and I worked at the church for 10 years and youth ministry for seven. And then I became a campus pastor for the contemporary worship service called Cornerstone. And I worked in there for three years. So him being like re- like tough loving you like like intense in that moment like that really could have gone bad i could have but it was what you needed church forever like yeah. i could really denounced faith and god forever after that but there was something holy in that moment even though i half of me wanted to punch him there was something true about the fact that yeah you're right. Damn it. Like God did not put me on this earth to sit around and cry about my dead children. Like he, he didn't. And, and it, that was divine. It really, you know, like if you're, if you're a faithful human, there's probably like, I don't know if you're lucky 10, five to 10 moments in your life that you're like, yeah, that was God. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you, um, sometimes you're like, was that, coincidence? Was that God? And then there's those few times that you're like, there you are. Yeah. And that was one of those times was, yeah, there it's crazy looking after me. Yeah. Like God knew exactly what you personally needed in that moment during that time when you were really, really, really deeply, deeply grieving. Mm -hmm. Other than that conversation with the pastor, were there other things that people did or said 
to you, for you, that were really, really helpful and helped to aid you in your in your grief and in your pain? I love this question. I really love this question because I think that, well, first of all, this is just my answer. So I'm mm-hmm. not saying I'm right, but I really appreciate this question because I learned a lot in my grief about what to say and what not to say. Yes. And in fact, I've threatened to write a book called, I'm sorry, comma, I love you. Instructions on what to say when someone is grieving. Please write it. Yes. That's the title of the book. And guess what? There's blank pages. Yes. Inside. For real. (laughs) It's like, you're right though. Like you're so right. Like we, I've talked about this with a lot of guests, how it's like, people and it's not it's not their fault like they mean well you know what I mean and like they're trying to make sense out of something that makes no sense you know my dad says this a lot um my dad was a pastor you know my whole life since I was in kindergarten and my brother tragically died when he was 28 years old and my dad says that something that people said to him all the time where people would come up to him and look at him and say like this should not have happened to you. Like to you of all people, you're a pastor. Like you guys are so good, you know, quote unquote, like this shouldn't have happened to you. And it's Mm. like, and they're just, they're saying that out of a genuine place of like, you know, like how could this happen to the pastor? If it could happen to the pastor, then it could happen to me. And like, I get that, 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 yeah. When, when a tragedy occurs close to you and to someone that you consider like a mentor, that's really like jarring for you in your life, you know, but really like you just need people to say, I'm sorry that this happened to you. I love you. I'm here for you. There's really nothing else. Like the trite, like everything happens for a reason. Like that's a ridiculous thing. God's timing is perfect timing. Uh, yeah, I, I've never found comfort in any of those things. And I would smile and thank them, but I wanted them to stop talking. Yeah. I yeah. really did. And like you, I totally appreciate and know that that came from such a place of, I don't know what to say. And so I'm going to just grasp at straws and try anything to try to make you feel better. But really the best thing to hear and the best thing to say is, I'm sorry, I love you. And I love that you added and I'm here. I, I've never said that I'm going to now. It's, it's, really beautiful. Another thing that I really appreciated, one of the things that I found out after I lost Charlie was I went to a grief counselor and she told me, you need to be prepared that you're going to lose friends. Mm, Tell me about that. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm going to like, I have, maybe she told me before I ever, no, no, she told me what, after I lost Charlie, you're going to lose friends. And I was like, you don't know my friends. Like my friends would never leave me. And dang it, if I didn't lose friends and I didn't understand it, but she said, people don't know what to do and people don't know what to say. And so because they don't know what to do and they don't know what to say, they, they're going to go away. Yeah. Because death and grief make a lot of people really uncomfortable. Absolutely. And so I 
I went through that and I was kind of shocked by it. But one of the things that I learned about myself is, is there's a couple of different responses in grief. And a lot of people, some people, when they are grieving, they really, they want their house full. They want their friends there and they want their people there. They want to be surrounded by, by love and, and community and distractions. And I didn't want any of that. I did not want any of that. Um, I wanted to be left alone, but because I wanted to be left alone, I isolated myself in my grief. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have the capacity to, to meet with people. I didn't have the capacity to call people back. I didn't have the capacity to be a good friend. Um, I didn't, I had nothing. I had my, my cup was empty. My bucket was. Yeah. I had nothing. I had nothing yeah. to give anybody. So the value that I added to people's lives was, was null and void. Mm-hmm. And so the only people that really stood the test of time were the people who during that season could give without without taking. Yeah. And very few people, and I understand it because friendship is an exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, very few people could continue to give without me giving anything back that it was short-lived for several people. And so there was a handful of people that stood the test of time that take offense to the fact that they could call me 10 times Mm -hmm. to check on and I still couldn't call them back. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure it was just very hard for you to relate to people, you know, because it's like you just feel, yeah, so lonely just to feel like, there's no one that exactly knows what I'm sure you didn't know anyone in your life who had been through what you went through. So no. who, who is there, you know, like there, there's no one. There was nobody. And then to boot, everybody was having babies. Ugh, yeah. We're having showers and twins and, oh. and so I, I was an anomaly. I mean, we were, we were a married couple, now 33, who'd buried three children oh. and had no hope of having any more. Right. And so really the youth ministry and the church became my community yeah. because I have any other community. It, I just poured myself into the kids, to the church, to my faith. Mm. Did you at any point in your grief journey feel angry at God? you know, and feel like, how could you do this to me? No. Wow. And I'm not saying that because I'm amazing. I'm just, for whatever reason, I never felt like it was God's fault. I wanted to understand why, but I didn't feel like a victim and I didn't feel angry at God. I felt like I needed him more than ever. I didn't have space for anger. Mm -hmm. I needed him. Yeah. That's beautiful. And that's when your faith really became real to you. Oh, it took off and I, God's been my wingman ever since. Mm. So you just said, you know, you guys had no hope of having other kids. Uh, Did you decide like, okay, we're just not, we're not going to do this. Like we're not going to be parents. Did you want to adopt? Like, how did that come about? I never wanted to adopt. And in fact, when people suggested it, like, why don't you guys just adopt? You know what I would say back to them? Why don't you adopt? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could do it. 
Hey, I it's true. Like, I felt like I needed to lose a hundred pounds and everybody was trying to tell me how to lose it. And I'm like, I don't want the grapefruit diet. Yeah. Like yeah. you do the grapefruit diet. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I love it. I'll lose weight when I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get off my back. Like, let me heal. I, oh. So that was not on your radar at all. No. In fact, this is horrible, but because, I mean, this is so way too much insight into the vanity and the humanity of Tobacito, but my children were so beautiful physically and and emotionally, and we were so connected. I was just like, I'm going to adopt, and they're not even going to come close. I get that. (laughs) Totally, yeah. And I'm sure you felt like, you know, I've, I have felt this love for my children. I would never be able to feel that for another child. I'm just not even going to go there. Yeah. I felt like it wasn't fair to me and I felt like it wasn't fair to them. Yeah. And so I just took it off the table. Um, and, and I had, I had made peace with the fact that I had been a mom, but that wasn't what I was going to be able to do. And Mm -hmm. so um, 2009, I was at dinner with a friend of mine who's a school teacher and she, um, she, te- she taught art at an orphanage in Africa. And so one night we're all at dinner and she was like, you should come with me. And I was like, no, I don't want to go to Africa. I go on a million mission trips a year with the church. I don't want to use my vacation to go to Africa and work in an orphanage. Like yeah. I like, no, but the next morning I woke up and Topher who's my ex-husband. He was like, T, I actually think you should think about that. Like you might like that. Think about that. And then, you know what? I bought my ticket that day. Wow. And then I saw these kids playing on the playground and they were so beautiful and hilarious and, and they needed parents. Like they really needed parents. They were drowning and they were starving and they were losing. Mm. And I knew that given the, the right opportunity that they could, the three of them could be something really special. So I called my husband and I was said to him, we have three children in Africa. <laughs> what did he say? He said, get your ass home. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I got home, he said, I'd wait a month. He said one month, which mm-hmm. was fair. You know, I'd, I'd had a very emotional experience. And, and so he was like, we just need to make sure, you know, one month, if you still feel the same way, we'll revisit it. And one month to the day, I was like, been a month. Let's go. Let's go. Ugh. And so we went, uh, we adopted them in June and, and then we had to wait for their visas. So I went in August of 2009. We adopted them June 2010. Had to wait for their visas. I brought them home August 2010. Oh, wow. So just one year after you met them, they, they were able to come home. They were home. Yeah. They were six, six, five. And now my twins are graduating. They're seniors this year and they're Carter and Anna Prin and they're the twins. And then George is a sophomore and they're spectacular. So when you brought them home, did that bring up anything for you? Like from your, from your grief, did it, you know, bring up any of those triggers or did you just feel like this, this is our, our new life and like, I'm going to push forward? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, I really, the two are really separate for me. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, one of the biggest fears I had about adopting was that I wouldn't be able to love. And I love my adopted three children every bit as much as I love Charlie and Louisa. Mm. And at the very beginning, I have to say one thing that was difficult, if if I'm, now that you asked that, the one thing that took a minute for me to get used to is I didn't physically see myself in them. Sure. And they're black. I mean, they are very black and like, there's no resemblance whatsoever physically. Um, And that took me a minute, especially with my daughter, Mm -hmm. you know, like I would, I would be with my girlfriends and their daughters and to see how much they look like them or talked like them or had their voices or their walk or, you know, I, I really missed the physical resemblance that I saw of me and my children, but now I see other things. So like my daughter is me. I'm sure she has like your mannerisms and stuff like that. Yeah. Her, her way, her drive, her attitude, her confidence. I mean, she is Tova's daughter. Um, She is my daughter and Mm. they are. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful redemptive story. I mean, obviously, your three kids, they don't replace the babies that you lost. But how good is God that he fulfilled that dream that you had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To, To do things differently than how it was done for you when you were a kid. God's redemption, you know, he always, he says in this, in these scriptures that like, he came to give us life and not just life, but abundant. He mm. uh, like what we asked for, we're going to get more than we could ever dream. Of. You know, there's passage after passage of that. And then when you're, but when you're in the middle of sadness and hard and loss or grief or suffering, you, there is no way that feels applicable to you. And there were for lots sure. of that that did not feel applicable to me. And yet I look back on my life and I am in total awe of God's story in me. I am an expression of the divine and the way that he has blessed me has allowed me to turn around and be a blessing to others. He's given me strength and courage. And, you know, when I didn't have it, that's why I named the book Borrowed Courage, because there were lots of days that I had to borrow courage from my savior in the garden of Gethsemane when he was borrowing it from his God, you know, to get through those moments of suffering, we've all had to borrow courage. Yes. And God's courage to get me through the darkest of days have, have allowed me to, to, to lend my courage to other people in their suffering. Yeah. I just think that's so beautiful. I love the title of your book so much. You know, I did an interview with someone at some point who said that, you know, this is why it's so important that we all share our stories like of life change and the things that we've been through, because then we can borrow each other's faith when, when we don't have any. And it's just, I love that. I love that concept of like, we can borrow from one another. We can borrow from Jesus. We can, but you know what I mean? Like when you don't have that faith, when you don't have that courage, when you don't see, like you said, you went through long periods where you wanted to die. So it's not like this is like, I'm just a naturally really upbeat person. And like, (laughs) I naturally, like, I just like handle things really well. And like, I don't let things get me down. Like, no, 
but you had a faith that was strong and you were able to borrow that courage when you needed it, you know? And I think that that's really beautiful. God's pretty good. He's really good to all of us. And, and I'm, I'm no more special than anybody else. Mm -hmm. I believe that the redemption and the love and the grace and the courage that he has given me is, is, is readily available for every single one of his children. All of us. Yeah. What would you say to someone who's listening to this and they're thinking, well, gosh, I could never survive that. Like what she's been through. And we didn't even get to all of it. Like you have other stuff that has gone on in your life. Like there are people that will read your book or whatever, and they'll think like, I could never, ever survive it. What would you say to them? I would say, yes, you can. And yes, you would. You know, you can't believe it when you haven't experienced it. God gives all of us this crazy gear in the middle of grief and suffering and loss and sadness to overcome. Mm-hmm. He, he really does. He gives us, and, and this past, the scriptures promise us that he'll never put us through any more than we could ever, than we could, than we can handle. Like we'll never have to go through anything that we can't get through. And I trust God with that. I did not trust God. If somebody had said to me when I got married, Hey, this is going to be your path. I would be like, no, right. Uh, I cannot do that. And yet we can. And, and anybody who's listening to this, who's been through something and then got to the other side of it, you know what they're doing? They're shaking their head. Like, yeah, you know, he does, like he does get us to the other side and it's kind of, it's, it's a silly analogy, but it's something, if, if you've ever gone on a hike and you've seen the peak and you're like halfway up, you stop and you look up and you're like, oh, I just can't do it. Like I, I can't, like, this is too hard. You know, I'm mm-hmm. suffocating. I'm, I'm tired. I I'm in pain, my body aches. And, and, and then somebody, somebody says, come on, let's just do it. Like we're almost, you know, we can do it. We're going to get there. And then you get to the top and you look out and you're like, why did I ever doubt? And if you've ever climbed a mountain, you know what I'm talking about because you're overlooking and, and it's so beautiful and the views are so spectacular and you see that you can't, you could do it. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you actually could do it. Yeah, And it was so worth it. And that is the same as any suffering or any grief or any heartache that I've ever had to go through is I've always got to the other side of the mountain always. Mm -hmm. And it was always, it was always worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who is currently in the depths of grief? I would say, get help, Mm -hmm. ask for help. Um, there's a lot of really good counselors, um, surround yourself with really good friends, Mm -hmm. take good care of yourself. Like Mm -hmm. I had to get on antidepressants for a little while. Mm -hmm. I had to say no in places and spaces that I would have typically and normally said, yes, I was very protective of my grief. There's a great saying that says in order to heal it, you have to feel it. And so don't bypass the feeling Mm -hmm. of the grieving because on the other side of the feeling is the healing. Yeah. And I would say, be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, 
there's no shame in doing whatever you need to do to protect yourself in the loss mm-hmm. and the suffering. We do not have to roll at full capacity all day, every day of our lives. We don't. Yeah. Yes. That is so true. Yeah. That's One beautiful. time, best friends was doing her daughter's hair. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I know we've got to go, but she was doing her hair. She's probably first or second grade and she had long, beautiful hair like you. And she was, you know, brushing, brushing, brushing. And, and my, her daughter was like, mom, ow, ow, ow. Like, why are you, why, why are you doing it that hard? And she was like, Ella, stay still. I'm trying to get the bumps out. And she flipped her head around and she goes, mom, I just don't feel like being perfect today. And I mean, she's the same age as my daughter. And she told us that story when she was in the first or second grade. And that has stuck with me. Yeah. Since like, and I've used it a thousand times. Like, you know what? I don't feel like being perfect today. Yeah. (laughs) That's like, that speaks to my soul because I'm a one on the Enneagram. So it's like, I struggle with that perfectionism. You know what I mean? And it's just like, yo, you can release yourself from that. Like you really can. Oh, you can. You don't have to be perfect every day. Yeah. I think it is a curse of the ones. Yeah, it is. I have the curse of the sevens. I don't worry. About I was going to say that you were a seven. I was like, and if I, I know you're not supposed to type people, but if I was going to type you, I would say that I would think that you are a seven and I'm jealous of the sevens. And I've said that before on this podcast, I always say that I have envy of the sevens and the twos because I feel like they're like the best ones, the best number, but whatever. It's the fine. The want to be more like ones. I mean, I, I need to get my shit together. Like I, I, <laughs> The, 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 the preparation for the podcast was, <laughs> oh, I feel so inadequate next <laughs> Please do not. I am telling you, I, you are a way more fun person than I am. Let me just tell you. But on that note, tell us about your podcast, The Remedy with Janice and Tova. Tell me about it. We're going to link everything in the show notes, but tell people, just give them a little taste of what they could expect. Okay. So The Remedy, I created uh, this podcast little over three years ago, I thought it might be really fun. I was on Jamie Ivey's podcast, um, the happy hour. And after that, I was like, man, I'd love to do that. That'd be a lot of fun. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just kind of figured out how to get her done. And so I just started thinking about if I did a podcast, what would it be? And so the remedy is all about life remedies. So we talk about everything. We talk about um, communication and marriage. We talk about parenting. We talk about erectile dysfunction. We talk about sex. We talk about, uh, communication and conflict. We talk about plastic surgery. We talk, I mean, healthy eating, eating disorders. Um, there's 182, yeah. 82 remedies. Um, and That's awesome. so I, it's been so much fun. I started it by myself and then mm-hmm. Janice was, Janice is my therapist and Janice was a very popular guest. And so I just one day was like, why don't we, why don't you do this with me? And so we have a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's so cool. So we will link that in the show notes. We will link your book, your website, all the things. I'll put your Instagram, all the things so people can find you. Before I let you go, what is your favorite snack right now? I didn't prep you for this. I'm sorry. You know what I love? There, there is... I think they're called siete tortillas. Yes. Yes. Uh, is that what they're called? I think so. And I put a I little- I can picture it. Yeah. Central Market. They're 
cassava flour. So there's no gluten. They're super healthy, 60 calories. I put some jalapenos and cheese and fry it up in a pan. That's my favorite snack. Oh, I love that. That's a good one. Thank you. That's a really good one. Tova, I cannot thank you enough. This was so amazing. I so appreciate it. I know this is going to touch a lot of people. Thank you so much. Well, you are so welcome. And thank you so much for having me. You're doing such an amazing job. I feel honored and privileged to be here. So God bless you and keep you. And thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. <laughs>